Grading to Encourage Effort, an Angels and Superheroes podcast. Today we examine what we have been taught, conditioned, or have come to believe about grading at school. Then we contrast that with what we know to be true about learning and motivation. We take these observations and provide guidelines for creating your own grading system that matches how we work with what we know about learning. This Angels and Superheroes podcast is derived from material that is also available at angelsandsuperheroes.com and might also overlap information from our book, Angels and Superheroes, Compassionate Educators in an Era of School Accountability, which is available at our site or from any reputable online or brick-and-mortar bookseller. The wisest thing I've ever heard a person say about grading came from my friend and sometimes co-worker Barb Schultz. A longtime teacher of math and English and life, she taught my son in middle school at Clark Montessori in Cincinnati. It was years later, in her role as a teacher educator, that she worked with a team of teachers who were doing an independent professional development on differentiation at Gamble. Here, she asked the basic question that shook my thinking about failing grades when she asked, If a child is learning... How can they be failing? This is more than a question. It's a revelation. Teachers, parents, students, all of us have long thought of a grade in the grade book as immutable truth, an unswayable bedrock fact which must be reported and cannot be changed. But what if it is something different than that? What if it is something, and I know I'm shaking some trees here, what if a grade is something less than that? I'm assuming you're a teacher who's in a situation where you're required to report a single letter grade and perhaps even a more precise and somehow more authoritative percentage to sum up 10 weeks worth of student effort, practice, improvement, success, and failure on a multitude of academic content standards and perhaps on some social skills as well. I'm sorry about your situation. I'm here to help. There appear to be two philosophies among teachers when discussing grading. One camp, by far the larger, more commonly understood camp, asserts that grading is a time-consuming but relatively simple process. You set up your gradebook, assign different point totals for different types of assignments, set up weighting or assign more points to emphasize the more important work, and average it all out at the end of the quarter. You know, something like homework is worth 10 points each, tests are worth 100, the big presentation is worth 500, and so on. At the end of the quarter, determining a grade is really just a math problem. Divide the points accumulated by the number of assignments. Maybe you get a fancy you know, uh, approach to it and you weight certain assignments a little more, but you have, at the end, a number. You compare that to the grade scale, the typical one, 90% or higher is an A, 80% and up a B, and so on, and you assign the almighty quarter grade. You can process 150 quarter grades in a matter of minutes. There is a second way. The second camp suggests that grading is a laborious and challenging activity where you try to find ways for students who are improving to demonstrate that growth without becoming discouraged or complacent. And the rules seem arbitrary, so you change them relatively often and you try to better match the growth you see in your students. It's a fair bet that those of you who read this blog are not in the grading is easy camp. I'm not here to convince you that it is, though my message is simple. 
the best thing you can accomplish with a grade is to keep a student invested in her education. I'll say it again. The best thing you can accomplish with a grade is to keep a student invested in her education. But how? Nancy Flanagan, a writer and consultant at Education Week, states the problem well in her article, Grading as an Opportunity to Encourage Students. Links to this and all the articles we cite are available at our website, angelsandsuperheroes.com. She says, you'd like to think that a low grade would be construed as a warning, a spur towards greater effort and focus. You'd like to think that, but not so much, at least for some kids. For them, a low grade feels like proof there's no reason to even try. How do you reconcile that with points gained, percentages achieved, assignments completed, and comparatively evaluated, the traditional tools of grading? There is no such thing as a completely objective grade. Compiling, weighting, and averaging numbers often leaves a good teacher with a grade that doesn't reflect what he understands about the child in question, what that child actually knows and can do. So, the directive to those of us doing academic grading becomes, essentially, first, do no harm. But here's the call to understand the individual student. Flanagan notes that her statement is true, quote, for some kids, unquote. This implies accurately that there are some students who see poor grades as motivational, just as there are some students who see them as defeating. So our first piece of advice is to understand each child's relationship with grading. What will spur greater effort? You can do this pretty simply by asking students about their grades in the past and what that shows about them, perhaps with a simple survey. Tell me about a grade you got in the past that you were proud of. Tell me about a grade in the past that made you frustrated. What do your past grades reveal about you, if anything? With these questions or questions like them, which could be asked at the start of the year about past classes or in the middle of the year about your own class, you can get a sense of the student's feelings about grading and whether these grades are motivational or defeating. It is only when you know the student well that you can really judge progress. Alfie Cohn has written extensively about grading, and he has pointed out the wrong-headed thinking about how grades motivate. He challenges the common concept that bad grades are motivational in an article published at his website entitled simply, Grading. He says, the trouble lies with the implicit assumption that there exists a single entity called motivation that students have to a greater or lesser degree. In reality, a critical and qualitative difference exists between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, between an interest in what one is learning for its own sake and a mindset in which learning is viewed as a means to an end, the, the end being to escape a punishment or to snag a reward. Not only are these two orientations distinct, but they also often pull in opposite directions. So if we are to adhere to the concept of first doing no harm, we must escape from our conviction that bad grades will motivate a student. And we must stand firm against the idea that missed work should be punished with a zero and then we just move on. Seriously, where did that concept come from? It's hard to imagine a work scenario where everything is predicated on the timeliness of the work. Do we walk away from an unfinished hotel construction job or replacing the brakes on the car? As educators, if an IEP or a 90-day plan falls past a deadline, do we simply drop the work and move on to other things? 
No. If the work we give in the classroom is truly valuable, we must ourselves treat it that way. We cannot tell the student the work is crucial and then also tell them to just take the zero and move on. Other articles from other authors discuss the relative merits of various point structures and the widespread adoption of the no zeros philosophy, where missing work is given a 50%. In fact, there are many ways to construct a gradebook. Standards-based grading, grading with rubrics, on a curve, etc. We aren't going to be deeply prescriptive here, except to say that whichever you choose needs to have student growth in mind and as its final outcome. A young teacher at my school at the time, Josh Vogt, and I wrestled with the challenges of finding a fair grading practice at Gamble. It was my first year as principal. Specifically, we were discussing ways to increase student motivation. He was unhappy with the number of students who did not complete the homework and who, consequently, were failing his class. Characteristically, I selected a sports metaphor from an article I had read years before. The article had asked, what if grading at school was more like sports? Josh and I were both video gamers, and we played Madden football specifically, so we knew we were pretty much experts on football. That was where our conversation focused. I asked him, where do you get graded in football? He replied, on the scoreboard, and thinking about high school, he added, on Friday night. I asked, and if you mess up at practice? Well, you practice it again, he said, and then he shrugged. Maybe you get yelled at. This idea caught his attention. Hey, that would really get things going. In the classroom, though, push-ups, sit-ups, I could blow a whistle and yell. He's not really a yeller, so I think at this point he's just being the devil's advocate. And I interrupted. Really, though, when you make a mistake in practice, you just keep practicing, right? And how do you get graded Friday night? Josh answered, the score. The score is your grade. It's real. It counts. From this, we created an interesting framework for making his classroom and homework a little more like practice and making other events a little more high stakes, like a game or other public performance. We realized that nothing in the practice field directly impacted the scoreboard. You want to make mistakes in practice. You want your students to learn in the classroom so they have mastered it in time for the game. The conversation ended with me asking, And if you don't practice? Josh answered, Well, you play terribly. I conceded that this was true, but I added, Yes, but I don't know a coach who lets you play if you didn't practice. It went on like that for a while longer, but we worked out a somewhat research-based and somewhat metaphorically bound new grading policy. Students had to practice in order to play. That is, they had to do the classwork and homework in order to take the quizzes or complete the projects that would determine their final grade. Done is done. Not done practicing means they are not yet ready to play. Josh's new policy included the provision that you could not even sit for the test until you had completed the work that was covered on the test. It flew in the face of the traditional teacher-friendly approach of take the zero. You know, the one that just let the kids take the zero for work that wasn't done, while teachers insisted in meetings and class and conferences that the work was really important. Seriously, if the work is important, like capital I important, you wouldn't really find it acceptable to take the zero. Somewhere along the line, a teacher invented that concept to make grading easier for himself, and everyone else just followed right along. The first week of implementation in Josh's class, one of our longtime parents and biggest supporters was upset when she learned her son could not take an exam. She'd grown up, like all of us, through a traditional system, 
and insisted that Rich be allowed to take the zero in his homework and just proceed to take the test. She was unsatisfied after talking with Josh, and her call next came to me. Fortunately, her son, as well as her husband, was an athlete. When I provided the rationale, using very little teacher jargon and relying heavily on the sports comparison, she relented a bit. Once she came to understand that Josh was giving extended time and that there were multiple chances for Rich to take the test after he completed practice, she agreed to give the policy a chance. A couple weeks after the original due date and our meeting, when Rich had completed the work, he sat for the test at his lunchtime. He did well. His grade on the test was two-letter grades better than his typical social studies score. He and his mother rightfully attributed the improved score to the fact that he completed his work. He played better because he had practiced. They became vocal supporters of the policy, and I even referred other parents to her as the year continued. Carol Dweck, whose mindset work has deeply impacted this generation's approach to education, reminds us that grading that is linked to ability rather than to effort, can prevent a student from working to his potential. In her Scientific American article, The Secret to Raising Smart Kids, she asserts, in particular, attributing poor performance to a lack of ability depresses motivation more than does the belief that lack of effort is to blame. Her warning is clear. Grading should be linked directly to effort. We must do everything in our power to help kids stop thinking about grades as a reflection of their ability. Phrases like, she's not that good at math, or her writing is average, or he is a D student should be avoided at all costs. If some summative statement like that must be made, perhaps in response to a standardized test score, it should be paired with a statement of encouragement or of the impermanence of a score at a given point in time. Dweck's mindset philosophy has become almost universally accepted. This advocacy for nurturing effort takes us back to our point. We must think of every aspect of our classroom when encouraging students to see learning as a process. We are quick to devise lessons and to teach students the language of effort. However, we undo this work when we subject this motivated student to the effects of the traditional gradebook. If we want to nurture a student who says, I can't get this, yet, we must have a grading system that says the same thing. So, here are steps to creating a grade system that encourages effort. Understand each child's relationship with grading. What will spur greater effort in that child? Create a policy that promotes greater effort. Consider a practice-to-play policy that emphasizes work completion and effort as a gateway to credit and a grade. Never, not in conversation or during conferences or in your grade policy, associate grades with the student's overall ability. Always explain grades as a snapshot in time, not as a conclusion of their learning. And finally, be willing to accept your gradebook average as a suggestion and give students the benefit of any doubt. This has been an Angels and Superheroes podcast. Check out our blog at angelsandsuperheroes.com and maybe share it with a friend. Leave comments with ideas about how you have used grading to encourage effort in your classroom.